0: With that term, creator enablement. You know, creator enablement.
1: Steal it. IP starting today. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> I think that is the way that you diversify risk.
0: Mm. You... And how do I do it in a way that honors the the investment of? Blood, but tears.
1: Are we considered geriatric millennials? Is that what we You
0: here? know what? <laughs> Legacy building mode, right? Like love.
1: What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Marketing Adjacent. I'm Mike Remberg. this is Gary Harrison, and we got some fun, spicy stuff to talk about today. A uh, couple reminders, cool. it is May 15th. That is important for what you'll be hearing based on when this goes live and how fast things are moving. Uh, our format is, we're gonna go, try to go relatively rapid fire, ballpark five minutes per topic. We'll go through the rundown, which are three uh, current events based uh, topics we'll talk about. Is it helpful? Which is pretty straightforward, something, and we're going to decide with Gario whether we believe it's helpful or not, and perspective, which we're going to give you our opinions on some trends that we are seeing, uh, you'll see a timer up in the top right here, uh, which we'll use to make sure we stick to the point. Gario we got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to be talking about uh, the creator economy, decentralized social networking. Is there an AI moat and what is it? We'll talk about uh, dupes and fakes as it pertains to luxury retail brands. And my favorite topic of them all for today, because we just talked about it a lot uh, prior to hitting record here, is ESG or what is passing as ESG right now. I'm being, doing a little bit of foreshadowing. So uh, with that, let's get to the rundown. righty. Um, top, top, topic number topic. one, the creator economy. Let me get our timer going here. Pretty sure I forgot that last time. There we go. Here it is. So we stuck, we actually, even without the timer, we did okay. So creator economy, uh, Gario, you sent me this, uh, earlier last week as we're prepping here, which is that Buzzfeed is going to be leveraging creators for more content. Okay. Um, and this kind of took me down a rabbit hole. Well, actually, before I go there, I'm going to set this up a little bit. Um, you know, they're all, the, as part of this, they're having this residency program where they're going to take existing creators and give them access to, you know, BuzzFeed's tools and distribution. And in turn, these creators have to cross-promote uh, their content. Here's some other interesting stuff as I was going down this rabbit hole, uh, which is Goldman Sachs says that the creator economy... Is going to be a half a five hundred billion dollar industry within the next three and a half years. Obviously, that's a projection, but I don't know that I'm terribly surprised by that number. Um, And uh, well, there's a few other things, uh, but you know we don't need to go into them. So these are these are two main things I think are important as we dive in here to this topic. So when we um, we think about this. I look at two things. One is how, like how this is gonna change revenue models. So a lot of these, if you look at it, it's, it's changing the kind of unsustainable revenue model that currently exists with hiring the talent to a more of a rev share model with creators. Um, and then that's a positive, I think, net positive. On the other hand, when we combine this with, oh, you know, there was one other thing. There's the AI thing I was going to share, which is, um, here we go, this thing. He was forgetting something, um, which is that um, there's this survey out there that what almost 95% of creators use AI. Um, here we go. Oh, and this is really the main thing I wanted to pull on here. So the, the reason why that's important in my mind is, if you think about AI assisted content creation with the proliferation of the creator economy, what does this do uh, to us as a society from a to, you know, proliferation of um, you know, disinformation and things like that, right? Because there's a monetary component here, which is if it's a, ha- if it's a 500 billion dollar industry, there's a lot of money to be made, So how much scrutiny are these creators going to have on the truth with a capital T, if you will? So two things, revenue, uh, models and, uh, disinformation. Gario, what are your thoughts on both of those?
0: Um, yeah, I, I and I'm shifting my thinking a little bit based on some of the conversations that we that we <laughs> had here. But, Always happens, right? Um, but I'll 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 take the 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 revenue model piece and the how much the the, the economy is going to be worth. If we remove the current business model, because I don't think the business model, to your point, is going to look the same today, which is primarily advertising driven it's not gonna look like that. It's gonna look very different. So, you know, when you take a step back and you say, well, what is gonna be true moving forward? Well, what's causing the rise of the the, the the creator economy? It's not people wanting to become influencers. It's our reputation is starting, our reputation online is starting to matter more, right? So whether you're a CEO or a high school kid, um, who you are individually, kind of IRL, as the kids say, um, and who you are online, you know that needs to match up. And a part of we that- are
1: geriatric millennials, exactly.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, well, part of that is the content you create, but also the people that give you the nod to say, "Yeah, you are a subject matter expert on this topic." Right. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more people that are not trying to be authors or not trying to be, um, you know, uh, you know, influencers or, you know, hawking products, but integrating it into their their business. Right. What they do. So you can see a I'm just going to use an example here. You can see a, a high performing SaaS sales rep building a brand as someone that, you know, is really good at understanding the SaaS software space. So that person can then move from company to company to company and maybe compensated as a part of their compensation, not just sales, but also just for the audience that they have creating content, right? So, so that's, that's the creator's incentive. I think there is a, a world where platforms like Buzzfeed, like the New York Times, like Inc., like Harvard Business Review, become curators of the best of those people and bringing that as a filter to their subscribers. So the incentives are, are gonna look very differently, but I think those are the two forces that are driving people in paying paying a high, paying a high premium for someone because they've been able to break news stories and hope that it brings eyeballs to, clearly we see that that hasn't worked because Buzzfeed news is done. And so is, and Vice just charged, uh, filed for chapter 11. Both of those companies, there's no denying the quality of their journalism and how much they pay their, their, their reporters to get that quality journalism. But the advertising model that funds it just isn't there. Economics just aren't there.
1: Yeah. So I think this this takes us into uh, our next topic, which I'm going to pull up here. And I'm going to pull in this thread a little bit to connect the dots. Uh, the topic is we're going to talk about ActivityPub, which is a set sort of protocols around decentralized social networking. But where the thread I think connects here is this point around identity that you brought up and how identity is now a, really a form of capital to a certain extent or currency that you, you as an individual as well as the company that's leveraging your identity, if you will, or is benefiting you from it needs to manage. So I think there's, if there's a from a technology perspective, a way to pass uh, trust through the system, right? So if you're a creator and you source your video from somewhere, or whatever, if that's able to pass through, and there's like a trust score or something like that, I think I can see things moving in that direction, especially if, uh, you know, something like this um, can play out, which is again, something you sent me uh, about activity pub. So I've, I've heard about activity pub. Uh, Prior to this but for those who don't know it's a set of um, uh, protocols that allow really the web and social networks to be interoperable so like your identity and your audience the social graph uh, you don't have to rebuild it every single time that a new network pops up you sort of bring it with you um, that's obviously part of it again I'm, I don't I'm not qualified to speak to the technical aspects of this by any means um, but the interesting part here is that uh, lots of uh, companies are working on this. So there's uh, in this article here they talk about even Meta is doing it. And I'll pull up that article really quickly. But you know some of the big ones are like uh, Tumblr and Mastodon and uh, a bunch of other ones I would never actually heard of. But um, <clears throat> but there's others you know like. Substack notes and all these other things. So it's it's interesting that this is growing in popularity. One other thing to point out is that um, where was this? Uh, here we go. Um, oh, and so yeah, I forgot to start our timer, let's do that. We're a little behind, but that's okay. Um, the automatic Matt Bolin's company bought this activity plug-in for WordPress. Right, so it's it's proliferating through the ecosystem. Um, Meta is working on it, like I mentioned. So now theirs is a little bit more. Who knows what they're actually going to do with it? If anything, it's very very early stages. It sounds like um, this was you know back in March roughly. The question here really is for me, um, what this means from a business model perspective for social networks. Um, and does this have enough steam to kind of break into the mainstream? Cause that's really where it has impact. Like right now, if you think about where it is and even where it's going, it's very much, we'll call them techies. Like that, mm-hmm. that's, who's using this and maybe some of the creators that we spoke about earlier,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but that's about it because it currently does not interoperate with the big social networks. So unless you have an
0: audience of mastodon, do you really care? Right. Well, bef- before we kind of un- fully unpack it, I think it's it's important to anchor it to um, why why would a you know someone who's not a techie or not a you know person like what would incentivize them to do it I, I've always liked your the, your framework which you talked about when we were doing our, our prep call of affinity so like let's let's start by defining what that means because I think that becomes the because we can make the art the economic argument for companies wanting to see this come to life but without users it doesn't go anywhere so why would a user want something like this and I think you' your you you your framing of affinity is, is the reason why someone would make this investment.
1: Yes. I, I always want to make the, the differentiate between awareness and affinity. I actually think from a marketing and advertising perspective, I don't care about awareness per se for, I shouldn't say that for certain brands. It makes sense. Like if you're a Coca-Cola and things like that, yeah, there is the mere exposure effect, et cetera, but I think people over index on that, mm-hmm. um, for anything else, the mere exposure effect, I don't actually think works that much, right? So what you care about is affinity. What affinity is is the spontaneous liking of someone or something. And that happens for some reason, something they did, something they said, et cetera. Now, the problem with that is that happens on this kind of more one-to-one basis usually. But this more open decentralized network where you can, where again, this is something you talked about and you, you got me thinking about this, you no longer have to recreate your social graph if you go from Twitter to Facebook to whatever, obviously right now you do, but that's the future, if you will, mm-hmm. if this plays out. Well, now you can, you've can you got built-in affinity as you move from network to network to network because you these people are already there and it's affinity at scale. Mm-hmm. So if you're a creator of any kind, even whether you have an audience of, 500 or 500 million doesn't matter. For that matter, I don't know, you can make the argument that the person with the smaller network benefits from this more than the one from the bigger
0: network. I don't know. Um, right. Yeah. So I guess, you know, that example of moving from network to network becomes really important because now if I spent a bunch of time building up my, and we use the example of, you know what I'm known for professionally right but you know and what I'm known for as a athlete or whatever it's still me right but I'm able to plug my ideas or perspective in to Strava for example when it comes to like working and that sort of thing um, but if if all you want from me is my content right on you know, generative AI, the place to go find that is LinkedIn. Right. But you know that it's me. Right. Um, So I think that there, that's, that's the incentive for individuals is to go like, yeah, I can just move from place to place. And if a new social network pops up, that is about, you know, um, fathers, right. We can just go plug into it. Right. Um, because, you know, it's every everywhere else that we are, you know, you're you're into MMA, um, you know, I'm into running, uh, you know, we're both like marketing professionals. So we bring that to this new dad social network, right? And that you kind of do that across the board. We don't change anything. We're just our network over here also now knows that we're the bad network as well right and everything that that means now the the part that is important for this on the why companies are really wanting this to happen is just one example apple's like app store right if you are uh and we'll use the the atomic as as an example so they acquired probably the best adrenaline app I've ever come across day one. So they bought that app from Apple. Apple spent the the first, you know, how many years of the the app pumping it up? It's beautiful. This is what good design looks like, all that. But they still paid, when they launched their subscription service, they still paid Apple a 30% tax to be in the app store. So they're paying Apple... To 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 for distribution and Apple is promoting them and they're continuing to rise. Now, you know, Apple also has visibility into their usage, right? Because they're on the iPhone, they can. Apple now decides. You know what? Wellness and journaling is kind of hot right now. People are caring about their their personal health, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to enter this space, so we're going to launch our own app and roll it into iOS. That's the rumor. Okay, great. So Apple is now taking, because Apple helped them become profitable and they can see how much value they're bringing, is saying, I want this. Oh, by the way, so while we're rising and you're declining, we're still gonna take that 30% tax on the way. So you know, pay us on the way up, pay us on the way down. And I think companies and shareholders they can't, they can't operate like that anymore. So trying to create a decentralized world where they have more autonomy and they're not beholden to Google, Apple or Facebook, I think is, is what's gonna drive this on the business side. And I think if the two can figure out a user interface that's actually usable and not end up in a Linux type situation um, where in theory it makes sense, but it's just so hard to just go to what you know, then I think, I think it, it, has a sh- it has a shot for becoming a thing.
1: Yeah, and that, that takes us into our next topic, I think, because we're talking about ecosystems here, which is, is there an AI mode? I'm not gonna forget to launch our timer, here we go. So,
0: which by the way, I say, this has been the smoothest.
1: I know, right? I was thinking the same thing.
0: <laughs> it's like
1: we practiced. Right. Um, so there's the. Uh, probably everybody has seen this uh, article from a Google engineer around hey, we have no moat, and neither does anybody else. Neither does OpenAI, really, is what he said. Um, now, something to call out this is one person's opinion. This was posted before Google I.O., which just happened and is where we're going with this. So really the the crux of the argument here, to summarize it, is Google's got no moat because open source is going to eat their lunch and there's this kind of fancy chart about how close they really are to kind of the, the prime time, you know, ChatGPT and BART, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> and it's evolving faster, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, makes sense. Um, but interestingly, at the end here, he talks about, I'm trying to think where was this? I might've gone too far. Somewhere in here, um, he talks about ecosystems. Actually, I actually think this is it. Uh, nope. Yeah, here we go. He talks about where owning the ecosystem is what's important. Now he talks about the ecosystem as something different. And my thought was, and then I saw this article here pop up um, in tech talks here. And really the gist that I wanted to get to, it's all the way at the bottom here, talks about, you know, Google and Microsoft still have the edge in the enterprise space. And I think this is actually missing a core component. So the the core argument here is that, you know, Google and Microsoft have enterprise level ecosystems, in Google Workspace, and in um, uh, Microsoft Office, and every the, the, the Office Suite, and Azure, and Google Workspace, and uh, 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 Google Cloud, all this stuff that, people who are tied into those cloud ecosystems, at the, at the enterprise level, they just, they, it's like moving a, a fleet of titanics. Like, it's just not gonna happen. There's too much security and IT and all sorts of stuff that's tied into it, where you're not going to go exploring an open source solution at this point, not very likely, at least not anytime mm-hmm. soon. And if you do, it's years, like decades, probably before that change happens. So they're safe in that place. But I think where it misses is actually the SMB market. Like our business isn't Google workspace. I know other SMBs that are on uh, you know, Microsoft's ecosystem. And SMBs don't have the resources to do this exploration and build their own open source models and create and and make it so that it works within some open source ecosystem. Like it's just not going to happen in my opinion. So if you look at it, there really the only opportunity for open source, realistically to me is in this kind of larger mid-market that has the resources and has the financial incentive to go, we don't Why are we spending all this money here if we can do better, more here?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But that's a small sliver of the economy. If you think about it, like, what is it? Like 50% of the economy is small businesses. Like they're not going anywhere. And then the other, whatever, 25% or more is enterprise, probably more than that, even is enterprise. So really you've got a fairly small sector that can, that can do this. So to me, the moat. Is actually the ecosystem, which you were the one that brought up in one of our previous conversations. So, I hand off to you for bringing that up.
0: <laughs> yeah, i I think this. I think this whole this whole it's been interesting to see this whole thing play out, because um, I think the point you made about that the SMB is one that actually even in our pre call when we were talking, I. I It didn't cross my mind until you said it now, like there is there is a economic the interest in spending the resources, both time and money, to make the use of the 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 open source tools is also a huge like barrier, right? So there's yeah, there's the ecosystem and you know these other things that that we talked about earlier that are huge um, unlocks for you know the openness of it. But I forgot about the what you just said, which is like at some point somebody has to spend money to make this thing come to pass. And if if what these larger companies are providing is Good enough at helping them get the job that they need to be done done, then why like why reinvent the wheel, right? Um, you know, it reminds me a lot of uh, you know IT departments in you know in the early days going this cloud thing isn't safe, which at the time it was way less safer than it is today, but they were like, look, I need to be able to go, you know, go touch my servers, right? And if you go down in the basement um, and touch these things and until it started being, you know, starting to break and causing business disruptions and you have to be on premise to access it. And like all this jazz, people go like, there's more benefit in making it readily available than, than before. And I think, I remember how we, how we arrived at this as a, as a mental model for this. It's, the moats being not just the ecosystem, but the data that lives in those ecosystems, right? So, you know, to your point of of, of Google, Google has all your information from your business from its inception, right? Because you're a Google shop. We are too, It's Curious, right? So, if a new employee comes on board, the model can now help them go sort through. You know, who's, who's been emailing with this person the most? Who's the best person to give me this information? And it can look at who owns the docs, like all that, and, and point them in the right direction. Microsoft can't do that because you're not a Microsoft shop. Facebook can't do that because it doesn't have that data, but Google can, right? And you have, you know, same same thing's true for Google and Microsoft. But then the example of if you meet someone, like when I, when I met my wife, she had an entire life before me. And a lot of that life was captured in relationships and social graphs in um, in Facebook. That continues to evolve. Even if she's not using Facebook, those friends that are a part of her social graph are using Facebook, right? So now it's you know coming up on our ten year anniversary. If I want to create a, a, a and get an idea for a a, a and creating an experience that's going to give me some ideas and it's going back and looking through the entire um, ecosystem of, of, of her social graph and coming back with some ideas, um, that's powerful. Google can't do that. Microsoft can't do that. Only Facebook can, right? So I think we're gonna start to see these, this open source layer for accessibility, but then the moats being you know, what data do they do they own? I probably should not have used that example of my 10 year anniversary as um, (laughs) here's a question. Does your, has your wife ever watched the show? Ah, yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, this this is all speculation. I'm I'm going to come up with something wildly, (laughs) wildly memorable, independent of- I'm uh, sure you will.
1: (laughs) So- Another perfect segue to it's only a perfect segue because was that helpful to you? We're talking about something different. Uh, we're talking about Lululemon and how they are dealing with fakes and dupes. And also we'll talk about some other folks in the, in the retail space. Um, and so let me pull up the article here really quickly. Uh, Where is it? Lululemon, here we go. So Lululemon, instead of, and I'm sure they're doing, it's not an instead of necessarily, they're probably doing, more than just this, but they are, they decided to have an event where they pretty much said, Hey, if you have a knockoff, bring it into the store, we'll give you the real thing. Which at first I was like, okay, whatever. But then it got me thinking around like, this is actually an offensive play. It's not a defensive play. And you had a really good way of, of, of uh, framing this. So I'm gonna let you talk about that. But I, I was also thinking about it like it's the, you know, the, the gun trade-in program that Australia did, whatever, I can't remember, in the 90s or early 2000s, whatever it was, right? Where it's like, hey, bring this in, and we'll, I forget what they gave them. I can't, it was cash, I think, whatever. But it's the same kind of thing. It's give them something that's more valuable to a certain extent.
0: Right. Um,
1: so you had a, a really, actually, sorry, I'm, I'm a little over the place on this one. I'm ruining our streak here they're not the only ones. So there's also, um, uh, where is this here, this one, um, other brands. Now I'm not really much into fashion. I have no idea who, um, this brand is, uh, but they, you know, these collaborations with these, uh, fast fashion, um, retail chains like H&M are a great way for them to sort of Disincentivize incentivize the buying of knockoffs because it's like, well, you can buy the knockoff or just buy the real thing at H&M, try it on, you know, have the whole retail experience instead of having to feel maybe shady about it or whatnot. So, right. um, anyway, you had a really great way of framing it. I want to kick it over to you
0: for that. Well, let me do this. So I'm going to frame it up, but your the way that you talked about it being an offensive move, I think I think is the most valuable takeaway from this discussion. So let me cue it up, and then like, would love to get your your your, your thoughts on the um, on the offensive versus defensive nature of this, right? So the when I first saw this, the first thing that popped into my mind was this is a brilliant move because we had talked about uh, Lululemon and just the pressure they were under from you know, kind of fakes on Instagram and so on and how they had to um, defend defend against that. I think it was episode two, right, <laughs> that we talked about that um, in terms of like creating brand moats. And this, you know, it, it's easy to go, oh, they're just giving out these, um, they're swapping these things out to try and, you know, raise brand awareness. But if you take a step back and you look at the the, the 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 economic facts that they're navigating. So there's an economic downturn, right? So buyers are spending less. So there's probably a rise in cheaper, you know, things that, that they are. Uh, those those yoga pants. They they're under pressure because they probably um, actually no, I know this because it was on their last earning calls. They have a lot more inventory than they thought they did. Um, and the the brand of lululemon even though they created the category is under attack right now they have a couple choices they can make with that they can either go down market by discounting right which it's really hard to go back upstream after you've been downstream right i've only seen a few brands able to to pull it off and it's 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 just really hard cuz if if you if people expect that they can get a cheaper version of it, they're never going to pay full price again, right? So that's really hard for a brand. So if, if you zoom out and these are the, the economic facts that they're navigating, what was really smart about this approach is they probably reallocated their marketing budget, which was probably cut and said, we're going to invest in um, word of mouth awareness for this. So earned media, right? because uh, I like all this all the news outlets picked this up, right? New Lemon's giving away free uh, free yoga pants. They people that were buying these cheap yoga pants that they had more inventory of than they can actually sell. So they're swapping these out, right? So they they would they would have either had to discount the 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 the, the, the skews to move them, or they could do this. Um, and they they have not discounted it. Therefore, they retain that exclusive, that luxury brand um, moving forward. So I would imagine on their next earnings call, they're going to say that this was a huge success. Inventory is down. We maintain our price, um, our price control so we can control the price of our products. We don't have to heavily discount. Um, and we have... Uh, Converted more of these customers into, you know, away from. Um, if they have, a, if they have a you know proper CDP, they'd be able to say like we converted customers from Lululemon customer or knockoff customer into Lululemon customers uh, for repeat purchases, right? So, with that like frame in mind. Um, yeah, I, I think it's an it's an awesome op- offensive move. And you were talking about why you thought that was.
1: Well, and there's one other thing that just came to mind too, which is how many of the people that traded it in, traded one thing in, are very likely to be influencers, right? I mean, there there are, I know for a fact there are social mm-hmm. accounts that are literally what they, their entire thing is like, well, don't buy this thing, but instead go get the knockoff and here's where you can find it and here's where you can get deals and all this I mean there's tons of them right Right. what if yep. somebody goes oh check out what I just did right mm-hmm. now all of a sudden now you get access to that whole audience of people who are following like oh that's interesting maybe Lululemon isn't the big corporate like juggernaut for yuppies and whatever right
0: so there's, there's
1: that. that that makes it a long-term offensive I find it interesting that to me this is a long time horizon play which you don't really see from public companies mm-hmm. um, and um, you know really the way I look at it is it's offensive because right now the, the reason people buy fakes and dupes is because they can't af- they can't afford or they can't justify spending a hundred dollars in a pair of yoga pants
0: mm-hmm. even
1: if they're diehard yoga yogis and they go all the time. If you're making whatever 45 grand a year, you're not going to spend hundred dollars in yoga pants or however much Lululemon pants cost. Right. right? It's just very hard to justify. But once they climb the corporate ladder and they get a promotion, this, that, and the other, now all of a sudden the brand has more appeal because they well, I want to show that I am a yoga person or whatever, fitness person, whatever it is, and this is my way to do it. I mean, that's how brand, that's how luxury brands work, right? Premium brands. Right. So you're now seeding that in these people, at least in a certain percentage of these people, which again, that's a long-term play, mm-hmm. but you're all, and you're potentially creating these like super consumers. It's like, wow, well, they did, they did this. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I think about like how many college students got converted into being loyal Chipotle uh, customers because they got some free chipotle a couple of times and they never stopped eating it right like that right. kind of thing.
0: so yeah yeah that that uh i did not that's a good point too the influencing the influencers that's another earned earned media mm-hmm. and i'm pretty sure they're going to include in their in their stats as well if there's especially if, i mean if somebody posted it publicly that's
1: like, Hey, here's a qualitative thing. Take a, take a look. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this is our first, is it helpful that we believe is actually really helpful? Yeah. <laughs>
0: nice. Good to think about it.
1: <laughs> All right. So now, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. Hopefully we've left enough time for it. Let's give folks some perspective. <laughs> And specifically let's give people some perspective on ESG or what passes for ESG. So, uh, you and I obviously talked about this probably for about 30 minutes before we started record here, but, um, I'll kick it off in a similar way. I'll give you my thought on it. And you had some really interesting lived experience things to add to it, which I really want you to bring up. Um, okay. Cause it's one thing to talk about it. in theory. It's another thing to talk about conversations you've actually had. So here's my general thought. And this all came up from this whole Bud Light thing. So let me pull that up really quick for anybody that hasn't seen this, um, right? Bud Light got a lot of flack both with the campaign and for pulling it back afterwards, um, you know, uh, around this, 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 this campaign, okay? with this influencer, etc., We don't need to get into the details. Feel free to look it up if you want. The reason I bring this up is, they're not the first, they're not the last. This happens a lot. And it's, for me personally, driving me kind of nuts. Because, like, it's just, the way I see it is, it's literally, I look like corporate political theater. That's literally what this is, in my mind. It is, individuals within organizations, the leaders usually of said organizations, that are taking it upon themselves to take their political views, no matter whether they're relevant to the business or not, and making it part of the business, whether it's through an advertising campaign, whether it's through internal initiatives. We're going to focus on the ad campaigns today, but there's a ton of stuff internally that happens as well that is just completely crazy to me, but we won't, we don't have time for that. Right. I mean, we see this and it really just turns into a whole bunch of virtue signaling and political posturing. Like, I mean, we see, we saw this with everybody with the Black Lives Matter thing. We see it all the time with the rainbow thing, rainbow flags, every company posting, changing their logo and doing that. Uh, we see it with Earth Day uh, all the time, like, Oh, you know, we planted a tree. Yay. Like all, all this kind of just, I don't know, just a bunch of fluff in my mind. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about the example that you told me around, um, uh, entrepreneurs of color not getting funding. Cause I think that is a perfect example of this. Right. Um, and then
0: talk about whatever else you want after. (laughs) Yeah. So to, to, to set the stage for it. Um, so, you know, we talked about the Bud Light example, right. And you, the point you made about CEOs and executives feeling pressure to comment on every, every, you know, social Issue that comes up is, is, is a real thing, right? Um, you know, you get pressure from employees and you get pressure from uh, customers and you're getting pressure from you know politicians that are you know kind of calling you out and daring you not to say something. So there's a lot of pressure from the CC. So I want to I want to like acknowledge that fact because that 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 is that is a core consideration in all of this. Um, so you know, to me, the the, the the bigger issue is, at the end of the day, a business is designed to create economic value, right? So if you're a leader of an organization, and you're backing the, and you want to make a statement, or you want to weigh in on something it has, your decision to do that has to be tied to the economic value of the organization for it to be for it to be worth the disruption that it's probably going to cause, right? Now, when I say, when I frame it that way, it's it's an important nuanced point to make because I think that's where a lot of folks are getting tripped up because you look at, you know, the Budweiser thing, um, they should never have done that, right? Like their core audience are people who just want to watch sports, you know, they're, they're sports and hanging out with with their buddies um and when i say that i mean male and and women right male and female the whole point is to just detach and hang out so the very fact that they were like look we're going to introduce a politically charged you know thing into the conversation like they should have seen that coming right and they should never have weighed into it. Like their 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 biggest campaign a few years ago was the What's Up, right? It's just folks coming over to hang out, right? Like that, like that, that was a hit. That became a cultural movement, right? And then you have on the flip side, politically charged, you have Nike, right? When uh Kavenick kneeled and it became this politically charged. Thing about like police brutality and, and Black Lives Matter and like everything related to that, which is an important conversation to have, the brand could have done that because that's what the brand has always stood for. And the, the thing that the thing that, that, that I find funny about the two examples is um, in economic terms, just, just to tie a bow on it before talking about the VCs, is they, Bud's or Budweiser's stock went down after that, that whole incident, right? Nike's went up. And if you look at it, it's, it's it, it makes sense because, you know, and again, when I, when I have had conversations about that, I give the example of my son is eight, right? And he is obsessed with Jordans. So he would buy, if he had the money, he would buy a Jordan to wear every week, every day of the week, right? And you had, um, you know, the, older generation that were burning their Nikes and, you know, you know, how dare Nike, the, the the American flag and you know, all the things they're, they're like barbecue dads, right? Like the shoe is going from, you know, the hot shoe to the barbecue shoe in the back of the backyard to the gardening shoe. Like they're not buying new Nikes, right? Like it's 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 done. It's a one purchase and it's done, right? So Nike understood who their demographic was, and that's what the brand stands for. So, like understanding that nuance and being able to to use that as the filter to determine which which conversation are we going to wade into is, I think, the 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 challenge that is a framework that I think a lot of leaders need to need to use. Now, for the VCs, when when George Floyd was murdered, there was a lot of conversations around. Um, diversity and inclusion. Right. And a lot of VCs made a lot of big promises. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, Twitter, Twitter was blaze. You, you would, you would think that there would be just a disproportionate, like everything would be equal now. Women, founders of color and, you know, um, uh, you know, white male founders would be equal at this point. If you were to assume that the amount of Twitter, if you, were, if you were to believe Twitter, we would be all good now, right? But when you zoom out at the actual dollars that got deployed, it was very little. Even though there was a lot of founders that were jumping through hoops because they now had an opportunity to go you know, pitch these VCs, which they would not have normally um, been able to, right? Because there's pattern matching and there's all this, this other stuff. But nobody was saying why. And everybody just got very quiet. So I went out and reached out to a couple of VC buddies. And I was like, look, off the record, some were male, some were female, off the record. You made these statements. You had these office hours. You met with a lot of founders of color. Because I talked with a bunch of founders of colors who told me that you met with them. Why did you not invest? And the answer actually surprised me. Because... First of all, they were they were scared shitless. Right? They were nervous, right? They were like, I I'm gonna tell you this. I kept having to say, this is off the record. This is off the record, right? Because nobody wants to be to get the political backlash of this. Because on one hand, if they and this is how they explained it, we have to, we have a fiduciary duty to our limited partners, the people who invest in us to invest in startups that we believe have a high likelihood of succeeding, right? And we do not believe that the founders of color that we met with were capital ready. Don't Doesn't mean that they're not good, good entrepreneurs, doesn't mean that they're not like great people, doesn't mean that they like someone else could bring this, this product to market, but we did not believe that they were ready and could take advantage of capital being deployed with them. They could not say that to the founder, because if you said that, you would automatically you gained, you got the virtue signaling from meeting with them, and you would have gotten like lit up for like you know you say you're just virtue signaling and benefiting from from it, but not putting with the money where your mouth is. That was the narrative. But again, when I asked him, "Well, what do you mean?" not capital ready. Well, founders of, of, of course, a lot of them didn't understand how capital allocation worked. Right. When I look at their total adjustment market, it wasn't where I thought it, you know, could be. When I look at their business model, um, it didn't feel like it was as big as I would need to, to to, the, the outside risk. I have other opportunities in my portfolio that were better uses of that capital. So as much as I would love to the same LPs that are yelling at 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 us to be you know I want to see more diversity in your portfolio are the same LPs that are going to go why didn't you invest in Uber right like <laughs> you know what I mean so so the it was a it was a catch 22 and the 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 whole point of it was I was able to say to those to reframe the negative as a positive, which is the hardest part of being a founder and starting a startup, even if you have a great idea, is the fear of rejection. It's sales, it's it's hearing no, right? And if it's one thing founders, even if, even if they don't have friends and they haven't raised their friends and family round or whatever, because their friend and family don't have capital to deploy like that, or they don't want to, to ask their friends and family, right? Because if you're you're not going to ask your auntie to drain her 401k for you to see if this thing works. She's been working her entire life. She's finally going to be able to retire. You don't want that you don't want that 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 pressure, right? As a founder. So they don't do it. So all the signals of a traditional is this a good founder doesn't match for a founder of color. The the cap the capital ready stuff that can be easily be fixed right? With training, mentorship, all that jazz. The piece that's hard is that that I think is a value add is the ability to handle rejection. Like if you're a founder of color and you've gotten to that point, you've worked in corporate America and I'm talking about male or female, you have dealt with adversity. You've heard knows like that is your superpower. But if you're a VC of a VC looking at it, you don't know that. Because you haven't lived that experience until someone tells you. So all that to say is we would not have been able to have that nuanced discussion because it's not it's not binary, right? There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of me going, huh, I never thought about it that way. Right. You do have LPs that you have, you're accountable to. And me going, no, it's actually a superpower. And you're
1: literally legally accountable to them. That's the other thing yeah. that people don't realize
0: and think about. Right. So, yeah, so it's it's this idea that, like, I need to understand how they see the world and have an honest conversation and not without the fear of, like, we talked a little bit about creating safe spaces to have these conversations without fear of retribution. But, yeah, if they had not been able to tell me that, I would not have been able to know that, like, hey, there, there's a piece of the puzzle that they're not missing, that they're not seeing, And the same thing goes for me, because I have friends, the same friends that were like, you know, frustrated that they went through all these hoops and they got their decks ready. And you know, I role-played with a bunch of 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 folks with their with their decks that didn't get funding. But like, so now I know that this is an objection that you're gonna have to overcome. Are you capital ready? Do you have a clear path to if they give you a million dollars? How is that million dollars going to get you to your next milestone? How is it going to get you to your Series A? I now know that that is something that they're looking for. And if you don't have a good answer for it, could could disqualify you from benefiting from that capital. But again, it's it's the willingness to have that nuanced conversation. Understanding that here's where we want to go. Here's the good that we want to see in the world. But there's some practical realities that we have to navigate in order to get there and we have to be able to explain our perspectives openly without the emotions around it in order to get to that outcome
1: yeah i mean i I love where you're that this entire story and everything you described because what it comes down to is there is a ton of nuance. The devil is always in the details and everything in life, business, personal, whatever, okay? And we as a society have gotten to this point where we want somebody like, we just want the black and white. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, we want somebody to draw a line in the sand, put a flag in the ground or stake in the ground or whatever stupid analogy you want to use and say, I believe in this, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what. And we support that like, well, you know, whatever. And then when it fails, we go, oh, well, and we get upset about it. It's like, it, things are so interconnected. There's so many intricacies. There's so many things that we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I know more than the average person about business and tech and whatever, but even you and I don't know about a lot of things. Exactly. Like, you just had to, you would not have been able to have this conversation with me. Had you not had this conversation with your VC friends. Yep. Right. So allowing space, as you said, for these nuanced discussions. And you said something before we hit record beautifully, which is, I I might misquote you, we can go back in the record here if we need to check it. But it's like, you have to leave space to say and do the wrong thing to get to the right thing. Right? Because I think I would be well, I'm generally a realist let's just say i'm not an optimist i'm not a pessimist i'm a realist but i really do think that most people when presented with the right level of nuance want to see the world and their communities and everything improve so knowing that if you don't allow them to learn these things and have these nuanced conversations or listen to these nuanced conversations and allow for people to do something's wrong it's never going to go anywhere
0: nothing will right yeah, there can't be this there can't be this 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 got you mentality that I think is as, as as captured as captured the captured any nuanced conversations. Like look, I'm gonna say the wrong thing and it's gonna the amount of time that it takes to backpedal saying the wrong thing and trying to stabilize the you know the the business right cuz the world doesn't stop because you're having this discussion right like you know what I mean like customers are still buying markets are still shifting you know we still have a, a you know a debt crisis that 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 that's that, that's coming at us like there's still businessy things that are happening independent of this conversation so if we can't have that conversation and quickly move past missteps and get back to what we're trying to accomplish, then if it doesn't need to happen, it's not going to happen. Right. And we're starting to see a lot of that right now um, with, with companies um, that are, are going like, look, we don't have to have, you know, demonstrated DNI initiatives right now. So we're actually going to scale them back. We're not going to cut them. We're just going to scale them back. And I think the, The companies that are doing a good job of this, of finding that balance, and we talked a little bit about this, is companies that are very clear on their mission and are willing to wade into economic issues that affect their ability to deliver that mission, right? So, um, you know, the couple of examples that I gave was Netflix after the Dave Chappelle, like, blow up, um, with that trans joke, with his, with his stand-up special, updated their culture deck. And I said, look, all these reasons why you came to work here at, at Netflix and you love it as a culture, this is also something that we're going we're gonna to put in there. Like, you're, you're not going to love everything that you work on. Like, it's, it's just the nature of entertainment, right? So if that's something that you have to have in your employment, you, like, this is not going to be a good fit for you. Same thing with Google and Microsoft. Their technology sometimes ends up in the military. If that's the case, this might not be the, the, the right fit for you. And Coinbase going and um, Basecamp going like, look, we can't wade into every single political debate because Slack- there's more activity in our Slack channels. There are water cooler Slack channels bickering back and forth than there is in actually shipping product. That actually make us the money to pay the salaries for you to be able to, be, to complain in the Slack channels, <laughs> right? So let's get clear on on what our mission is, and find the way to bring all the, the things that are that that are relevant. Because there is social issues with there, like economic empowerment is something that is in um, that is in. Uh, Coinbase's charter, right? So if there is, you know, legislation that is going to, you know, disproportionately affect, um, you know, home homeowners of color, hell yeah, jump into it, right? Like, wait into it, because it's directly tied to your mission, right? But if there is something like, you know, that's I'm not even going to make something up, but there's some other issue that it's gonna be a stretch for you to weigh in on against the mission that you have, then leave that to an organization like Ben and Jerry's that that is their thing, right? Like, and if if you want to give the CEO a call and say, hey man, this is not, this is not us, but we believe this is an issue, go get them. And they'll probably do the same thing to you when it aligns with what you're doing. And I think we need to get to that point where you know the coinbase ceo can give a thumbs up to what ben and jerry said to go yeah i believe i am with you ben and jerry but they're not wading into the issue right yeah i don't know it's it's this this is a this is a nuanced topic it's a nuanced
1: topic we can i mean we keep talking about it for hours probably there's a number of other things i wrote down from just this little conversation here but we got to end it at some point this is all for our regularly scheduled programming if you like the show leave us a review on itunes leave us a comment on on youtube leave us a follow all that fun stuff and on that we will be back in a couple weeks in the episode of marketing adjacent
0: i feel like we should do more of these